Updated recommendations for adolescent literacy. It's coming up on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Downs. I'm a literacy coordinator for a local school district, an adjunct instructor at Utah State University, and a PhD graduate of that institution. This podcast is all about bridging literacy research into practice. If you are new here, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. If you are a returning listener, thank you very much for joining us. I'm very excited about today's episode. Today we're bringing on a guest that I have had my eye on for quite a while, probably about a year and a half or maybe close to two years, and uh, finally just made it happen to to invite him and get him on the show. My guest today is Dr. Dan Reynolds. He is an assistant professor of English and Literacy Education at John Carroll University. He does a lot of work with scaffolding texts and helping support students in complex texts. But today we're talking specifically about updated recommendations for adolescent literacy. In 2008, the Institute of Education Sciences released a guide for teaching adolescents grade 4 through 12th literacy, and it was very popular, still very popular to this day, 15 years later, and uh, Dr. Reynolds' contention is we actually know quite a bit more in most, if not all, of the areas of this practice guide, plus there's new areas of research that have developed and matured quite a bit in the last 15 years. So he's here on the show today to talk about what uh, the recommendations from the original 2008 practice guide were, how we might look at those with a little bit of an updated lens here in 2021, almost 2022, and it's a fantastic episode. Lots of great pragmatic takeaways for your classroom if you are teaching grades 4th through 12th, obviously, but I think even for grades younger than 4th, there is still takeaways in this episode. But before we get to Dr. Reynolds, I just want to thank those that have donated to the show and that are helping keep this an ongoing production. You can do that by Venmo at Teach Lit Podcast. You have to be in the business section of Venmo. Or if you go to the website Teaching Literacy Podcast, there's a tab that says About Your Host where there is a PayPal link where you can uh, donate some money to help pay for hosting and upgraded technology equipment and that sort of thing. Thank you very much for all those who have contributed. And with that, without any further ado, let's get to Dr. Dan Reynolds talking adolescent literacy. Dr. Dan Reynolds, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Good morning, Jake. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here on the show Uh, Today we're talking about adolescent literacy and uh, extending some of the research findings from the the IES uh, research report from 2008. Before we get to that, though, uh, I'm curious, can you give us a brief background of of who you are, where you're working, and, and how you became interested in researching adolescent literacy? Sure. Right now, I'm an assistant professor of literacy education at John Carroll University, which is a small Jesuit Catholic university in the Cleveland suburbs. But I've been fascinated by adolescent literacy ever since I started as an English teacher 
16 years ago. I taught at urban Catholic high schools in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and Austin, Texas. And, you know, when I decided after seven years of high school teaching that I wanted to get my PhD, that I just wanted to understand better how high school kids learn to read and write, uh, what really happens in that learning process, what's happening in their brains, what's happening in their bodies, what's happening in their classrooms, what's happening in their worlds. And that's been my driving interest ever since I got it about nine years ago. And I still, it's easy to think back to high school teaching days when I'm training high school English teachers too. So being, uh, keeping one foot in the teaching world with training teachers and one foot in the research world with, with adolescent literacy research is what keeps me going every day. Well, we'll have plenty to get you going on in this episode. There's a lot of great stuff to talk about here with adolescent literacy research because there's interesting things happening in that area right now. Before we get to that, just to frame where we're going, you know, with the practice recommendation from the IES, there's currently heightened interest in consulting research evidence and making sure that practice is, is evidence-based or research-based uh, to make instructional decisions. What are some of the, the key players in driving that, that current heightened interest in consulting research evidence? Well, I think the availability of that evidence is certainly one big factor of it. So in so many um, fields, particularly in education, we're generating more evidence and doing more research and more quality research than we've ever done before. You know, 30 years ago, if people had been generating calls for evidence, a lot of people have been saying, what evidence? Another aspect is, of course, the standardized testing that NCLB ushered in starting in 2001 and, and predating that, of course, but uh, and continuing through the, you know, Race to the Top and ESSA, that since states have so much testing data, outcome data, to work with, they want to see that outcome data get better. And, you know, it works also with big federal grant programs. I know here in Ohio, when the Federal Comprehensive Literacy State Development Grant, for example, specified that all state programs, in order to get their hands on tens of millions of dollars, they needed to show that their programs were evidence-based. So that means our state plan insists on ESSA's levels of evidence. I actually just presented on this at LRA the other day um, about how tracing the definition of evidence to guide decisions, in many cases, follow the money to getting federal grant money. And that's where, of course, ESSA definitions are embedded in federal grant proposals. So this provides a really great opportunity for, for school districts and LEAs to be able to curate curricular practices that are research-based. Maybe let's shift and we can talk uh, more about, specifically about the practice guide we're going to be talking about today. You know, when I first started my doc program, like in the like first semester, in the first few weeks, we were told about how the IES has practice guides that have been curated from, from research and that uh, are meant to influence or, or should be the first place to go to, to if you're trying to see what it could look like in practice. And the first thing that struck me as I started to look through these was that uh, a lot of them were a little bit outdated. Uh, so for instance, the one that we're talking about today is the Practice Guide for Adolescent Literacy, and it's it's freely available online. I'll link to it in the show notes. And it was written by Camille and colleagues in 2008. So can you give us an overview of that document what are some of its uh, intentions or aims that it was meant to do, and then some of its uh, recommendations that it that it provided? Yeah, so it was one of the first practice guides. It was published in 2008, and in a separate companion article to the one we're talking about, I dug into all of the studies that the authors cited as the evidence for theirs, and there are 34 different studies that are cited as evidence for those, but those date back to, you know, the 70s. Basically, a committee got together and made these instructional recommendations in the mid-2000s, 
and it was published in 2008. So they give five major recommendations, providing explicit vocabulary instruction, that's number one, providing direct and explicit comprehension strategy instruction, that's two, provide opportunities for extended discussion of text meaning and interpretation, that's three, number four, increase student motivation, number five, make available intensive and individualized interventions. So you can really sum those up as vocabulary, comprehension strategies, discussion, motivation, intervention. That's the five-pronged strategy that the guide advocates. You know, certainly the new research doesn't undo the old research, but it does in many ways extend that or helps it evolve. So we're now looking at this practice guide is, is 13 years old. It's almost 14 years old. The landscape of literacy research, it's quite different now than it was then. So can you just give us an overview of how has research expanded on these five recommendations provided from Camille and colleagues? Well, I'll start by just telling the story that actually gave rise to this article. <laughs> so I was working with some friends on the Ohio State Literacy team, and we were writing the adolescent section of the document. And someone asked me, well, what do you think should be in this document? I said, well, does it say anything about academic language? And the, my colleague said, academic language? There's no research on that. I said, what, what do you mean there's no research on it? There's tons of great research on core academic language skills and academic language as sociocultural practice. There's tons of research on the challenges of appropriating the discourse of language of school. And my colleague goes, what? but it's not in the IES practice guide. There isn't any research on it. <laughs> and, I, and that's when I was like, oh my goodness, this is a person who I really respect their work as a great colleague of mine, but that she was really thinking that the IES practice guide was in some, at, at that moment, she implied that it was the be all end all. And I said, okay, well, if people are going to think that the IES practice guide is that powerful, then I need to actually figure out exactly what you're asking me now is like, what has research expanded? And, and people still, that was, that conversation was probably two or three years ago, but people still today, I was uh, conducting a webinar here in my state and I asked how many of the district and regional curriculum specialists in my state, how many of you consult this guide? And 96% of them said they did. So it's a really widely used document. But just for example, it doesn't say anything at all about digital literacy. And we know, of course, that digital literacy has changed drastically. Imagine what, shoot, like, Facebook barely existed in 2000. It was still like a, a little dream in Mark Zuckerberg's dorm room when they were writing this. And now we've got this explosion of digital literacy and it's fundamental to our democracy. And yet this guide says nothing, nothing about it. Digital literacy it doesn't say anything about text complexity. So much research has been done about text complexity and it's actually part of the standards that so many of the states inspired by Common Core use, including us in Ohio. It doesn't say anything about disciplinary literacy. It actually specifically says, we think disciplinary literacy might be the kind of thing that eventually proves, but there's not enough research on it yet. And now we know that there's tons of validated and tested models that show that disciplinary literacy approaches can improve reading comprehension for high school kids. I would say those are the three big things I say in the article that are not even touched on at all in the IES guide. And somebody looking at the IES guide might think, okay, cool. I don't need to think about digital literacy. I don't need to think about disciplinary literacy. And that's, I think, a, a really short-sighted approach to adolescent literacy. Writing's probably another one that's really come of age here in the last 10 years with all the meta-analyses that, that, that Graham's just been 
cranking out as well. There's also with those original five recommendations around providing, you know, explicit vocabulary instruction, comprehension instru- strategy instruction, opportunities for extended discussion and text, uh, increasing student motivation, and then making available intense or individualized interventions. The work has also progressed in those five specific areas as well. So can you provide maybe a, a little bit of compare and contrast of what was of those five recommendations, what was the run of the mill with what it was explaining in 2008 versus how we might look at it through a little bit different or more nuanced lens now? Yeah. So the first one, vocabulary instruction. And the guide mentioned a number of things that we would, of course, take for granted in vocabulary instruction, that students need multiple exposures to words. Students need practice using those words. Words need to be selected meaningfully. You know, words should be embedded in larger, you know, texts. So those are those sorts of things that we would certainly have understood. But a lot of research on um, morphology as a, a dimension of language learning. Um, a lot of interventions have shown that morphology builds students' spelling knowledge, builds their morphological knowledge. So understanding how word parts can be a really important part of vocabulary instruction. I think there was a certain strain of instruction that always thought that Greek and Latin roots are important, but we have much more evidence suggesting that it's actually uh, a driver of outcomes, that we didn't have that evidence, you know, when the, the, the in 2000, it's really been 15 years since the last study the most, the latest study that was cited in the IES guide was in 2006. So we're looking at like 15 years worth of work on morphology that has come out with some incredible results and academic language as a companion to vocabulary. You know, thinking like the word gen program or the rave program, both of those two are really powerfully powerful evidence about vocabulary instruction going beyond merely different types of exposures to words and more frequent exposures to words, the kind of basic vocabulary instruction that the guide was advocating for, you know, when they published it in 2008. That's just vocabulary. You know, when you think about comprehension strategies, understanding comprehension strategies, particularly in the disciplines, I I imagine there's probably even more comprehension strategy research, but so much of comprehension strategy research has shown, okay, what does a comprehension strategy look like in a history text or in a literary text? And those texts have different structures and different disciplinary practices. You know, we know that our the, the Common Core standards have RL standards and RI standards because of the unique features of informational texts. But the IES guide doesn't really distinguish between those two. They do make, they do mention it in the text, but comprehension strategy instruction in the rec, at the level of the large recommendation doesn't seem to be driven by the demands of the text. And that's key with text complexity too, that the, actually text selection and text choice is not really mentioned much in the guide. It's assumed that if you are, you know, building these kinds of strategies, then it's going to be successful almost regardless of what kind of text you're reading. We had Freddie Hebert on the podcast, and she was talking primarily about morphology instruction. It seems that, you know, with part of the evolution there in the last 15 years is before we're talking about, okay, we need to teach single individual words and we're going to curate, you know, really high leverage words to teach. And where now it's more, we're going to turn that road into a super highway and teach different Greek and Latin roots or different word parts so that a student can understand myriad words from that word part rather than just teaching, you know, individual words. And there's new evidence actually that puts a mild damper on vocabulary instruction. So in the IES guide, the authors speculate, well, we don't know for sure that really good vocabulary instruction is going to impact generalized comprehension instruction. 
But the guide says, well, we're pretty confident that's going to be the case, right? If you learn a lot of words, it's, of course, going to help your comprehension. But there is some research out there um, that suggests that there's not a lot of good vocabulary programs that show effects on comprehension, that ultimately that at the discourse level, there's so much knowledge and there's so much discourse structure and there's so much academic language and so many things that are bigger than, vo than vocabulary that are shaping comprehension and that maybe actually there's it was a uh, Wright and Cervetti who published a, a review a couple of years ago saying that hey you know this might be true someday but right now we just don't see vocabulary interventions having much of an effect on comprehension and that is actually contradicting what the guide thinks is probably true. So the work continues. Maybe let's tackle the bottom three then. Provide opportunities for extended discussion of text, increasing student motivation and engagement, and then making available intensive and individualized interventions. How might we look at those three through a little bit more nuanced of a lens now in 2021 than, than we did in 2008? Well, sure. I mean, for sure, we have better models of class discussion and why it matters than we had you know, 15 years ago, looking at the quality talk program and Murphy's work. I think she's a professor at Penn State. We've seen so quality talk specifies what types of models and how the uptake in talk and building on students' ideas generates deeper discussion that leads to deeper comprehension. We know that discussion in the disciplines you know, which is often really hard to teach because social studies teachers or science teachers or math teachers don't see themselves as leaders of discussion, perhaps in the way that English teachers do. But actually, discussions in those class can be incredibly rich ways in which uh, students grasp fundamental concepts when they explore it and they hear different perspectives um, from their classmates and their teacher guides them. So pressing students for more evidence, encouraging students to elaborate. You know, those are the sorts of things that we didn't know that much about. We knew that discussion was important. Discussion's always been a part of a good literacy class, but we know a lot more about the how, especially when it's not an English class. We didn't, we just didn't know that 15 years. Yeah. So it sounds like we knew, you know, on a binary, you know, yes, no, does the discussion matter? Well, the answer was yes in 2008, but now we're starting to have more an idea of how much and in what ways and for whom and, and some of those other questions are beginning to get a clearer picture now is what it sounds like. Well, I mean, amusingly enough, this the uh, the IES guy had actually declared the level of evidence for tech discussion to be only moderate at the time. And yet, when you look at programs now that are really successful in moving the needle in adolescent reading comprehension, say a program like Word Generation, discussion is fundamental. You know, it's happening all the time. Students are turning and talking to each other. Teachers are leading whole class debates. Students are using those debates to structure their writing. So it, it's hard to imagine, other than programs that go all in on computers, which, you know, there's another strain of, of practices that do that. It's hard to imagine someone developing an adolescent literacy program that doesn't include you know, discussion. But even 15 years ago, these experts, this big document is like, um, discussion is moderate. We think it's probably going to have some good effects, but we don't really have a lot of evidence to prove that it has good effects. So then what about student motivation, engagement, and then interventions? Where, how has work progressed in those areas? Yeah. So understanding the socially engaged process of reading for you know, middle school and high school kids about how if about how given meaningful opportunities and meaningful opportunities can, of course, I think the guide did, of course, mention lots of important things about giving students meaningful opportunities to increase motivation, asking real world questions. What I think we've done, <clears throat> interestingly, now is to show a little bit how creating a socially engaged culture amongst the kids. The difficulty with trying to decide what's meaningful is you've got 22 kids. 
25 kids in your class. <clears throat> you know, you do have to aim at something that's meaningful, but when you let socially engaged literacy happen, you know, I'm thinking about articles by Gay Ivy and Peter Johnston in the study they did a few years back about creating a socially engaged culture, listening to the students actually drive some of the questioning because they were given enough freedom to choose their own books, but also to build, it's not just book choice, it's about building a culture. Sometimes, you know, we'll have schools that say, oh, well, I, I, we do a lot of student choice, right? We have 15 minutes of SSR every Friday. And that's a good start, but it's not doing much to create a socially engaged culture. And I, I thought that too. When I was a high school teacher, I had 15, I had like half an hour of SSR every Friday. But there, and some kids were really engaged with it, but there were also some kids who were just like idly flipping through the pages because they weren't socially engaged. I hadn't thought about like what kinds of texts would really socially engage kids. How do we use YA literature to drive moral and personal engagement with teenagers wrestling with problems that are really relevant to their lives. So I think we've learned a lot more about creating a socially engaged culture. You know, when I was at ALER, the, their dissertation award, well, their dissertation award winner from 2020 was speaking and her dissertation was, was in that same area where she was, she did a book club with sixth graders, but the, they, you know, the group read the book outside of class, but then they did their discussion during class. And that was part of her framing was that, you know, she said in sixth grade that, some kids won't do it unless other kids are doing it, but by, by helping those that were already engaged with literacy in the same book club as some of the other students who weren't, it was able to facilitate more of that social environment. You know, even though, you know, reading is a solitary act, there's, there is a huge social component to it that we can, you know, leverage. And I think that also goes back to the digital literacy component that you referenced earlier of how much of reading is you know, social or collaborative in one way or another now, given, you know, social media and, and, and the internet in general. Well, and my, and my pre-service teachers, we, we had this discussion in my adolescent literature class this year, and they're like, yeah, we get a lot of our recommendations from book talk. I said, what's book talk? It's just, just TikTok tag that threads different book recommendations through the TikTok video app. And I realized that, okay, I'm not going to move my class platform to TikTok, but if I leverage like, oh, le allow students to talk about what they're hearing on TikTok and what they think is cool and what people else are recommending to them on TikTok, that's building socially engaged cultures. You know, I think one of the most fascinating aspects of the Ivy and Johnson study that I was talking about, they did, you know, published it probably eight years ago, but they had, uh, you know, 200 different copies of YA literature books in the eighth grade classrooms, but they had like three copies. And I was like, that's just the opposite of what most schools have. Most schools either have a bunch of books, but they got one copy in the library one copy of every book, or you got a class set where it's 20 books. And I'm like, this, the magic is just in that number three, because three means that three kids can read it together and they can talk to each other about it. And then if one kid's finished it, they can pass it off to another kid and that kid's got it right away and they don't have to wait. I was like, oh, that's the magic. I never thought of that. In my classroom libraries, my, at every school I ever worked in, you either had class sets or you had one copy. You never had three or four copies so friends could read them together. You know, my last year in the classroom, I worked really hard to get doubles of everything, of trying to get two books. And I, I was just one short. I was one short. It I mean, like. I don't know whether what the magic number is, but I know that the magic <laughs> yeah, number is more than one and less than, than 20. <laughs> and I did not do that when I was a classroom teacher. And I'm like, oh, I wonder what would happen if we just, you know, found school libraries and figured out let's double the copy, just like every public library does. You know, I would say most classroom libraries don't have two or three copies of the most popular books. 
Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm all on board with that. I love it. So let's shift to that last original practice, the IES practice guide, a recommendation on making available intensive and individualized interventions for struggling students. I feel this area has just had a deluge of research, uh, you know, with what Sharon Vaughn is doing in Texas, uh, I mean, across the board. What do we know and understand now that maybe was a little bit hazier in 2008? Well, when you read the 2008 guide, they don't really specify what sorts of things that you would really want to assess for. And there weren't particularly good, I think assessment has come so far since then. So the assessment, the, the guide says like, well, just assess what they need and then give them what they need. But the what is it the thing that they need, you know, and what does that look like for an 11th grader? What does that look like for eighth grader? What does it look like for a fourth grader? You know, because the guide takes such a broad range of kids from fourth grade through 12th grade, you know, so first off, you know, identifying word recognition needs where they exist, you know, that's really crucial, but we know how to do that better, you know, ETS developed what I think it's called Read Basics now, but there is a, it used to be a really time consuming exercise in individually listening to oral reading decoding assessments. And that expertise wasn't just there, just wasn't there at, high, at almost every high school in America. But now we've got a computer-based assessment that can validly assess decoding needs. So you can find out whether your students need more decoding support. So assess, that assessment is just huge. I'm hoping to use it next fall. And when I'm, I'm working with a couple of districts to, I'm working on a sabbatical project to revamp their reading intervention programs. So I'm really excited about having that assessment in my toolbox. Another one, I worked on a project when I was a grad student at Vanderbilt called Monster PI, which is a computer adaptive assessment of morphology. You know, wondering what kinds of morphological skills are relevant to comprehension, but also how are they accessible for and teachable? So our plan was that we could theoretically distinguish between different kinds of morphology skills. You know, can students just see the morphemes or can they also use the suffixes and morphemes to figure out parts of speech? Those are two separate morphological skills, which each contribute to comprehension. But if you don't have a good assessment of that, it makes it really hard to figure out what to teach. Teaching morphology is a very vague, vague recommendation. It could look like a lot of things. I think assessment has come so far. And, you know, building these computer adaptive assessments means that you don't need as much time as you would have needed 15 years ago to do all this stuff, you know, do a QRI or something individually with kids on a decoding. Um, yeah, I think in, you know, the Q, QRI, you know, you're looking at 15, 20 minutes a student, but with computer adaptive being able to have it do things technology does well. So humans can do the thing that we do well, which is Okay, what do these data mean? And how do I respond to that intelligently? And I love the way you put that, like the things that we do well. I'm, I'm very skeptical of programs that, you know, want to move adolescent literacy instruction to computers. You know, we know how socially engaged readers are, and we know the uh, complex terrain of discussion can actually be so much more meaningful when you're discussing it with people that are in your community. Seeing, using assessment tools judiciously, and then building instruction around that, you know, we can do that. And, and that's just the assessment piece of it. You know, we're talking about Sharon Vaughn's work, or the work that the team that developed STARI, the Strategic Adolescent Reading Intervention, I think they were originally based at Harvard, but they've done it all over the place. And the uh, the success that they've had for programs specifically designed for kids reading two or more grades below grade level. I mean, that's, that's powerful stuff. There's a happy medium here where we're saying, you know, like we're saying, okay, digital literacy has really come a long way in the last 10 years. But, you know, we're saying that, you know, that computerized assessment can do a ton, but at the same time, we don't want to swing the pendulum too far the other way and be like, okay, then all of our literacy instruction is going to be digitally ingrained or where do you sort of see that fine line of being able to sort of embrace where current research is at without sort of making, you know, every tool the hammer to, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I like, I like that phrase, every tool with a hammer. I think it also depends on what skills you're teaching. Like when you, you, we have to teach unique aspects of digital literacy skills. We know from research that different types of thinking are required when you're evaluating sources online than when you're evaluating a source on, you know, you just have so there's so much different types of cognitive work that need to be done there's so much more socio-cultural awareness of whether indeed what you're reading is something put out by russian trolls to capture our in our uh or disrupt our elections you just don't have to think about that when you're dealing with a piece of paper so like you know teaching digital skills has to be done on the platform and it has to be done live a recent article just came out an educational researcher saying something like uh the folks at the Stanford History Education Group ran a national sample of students trying to detect source quality, and they found out that something like 96% of students failed to discover that a source that was advocating for a source about that was discussing climate change was actually sponsored by a fossil fuel. Yikes. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, I kind of know it's true because, you know, why would we expect high school kids to do it? Because, you know, <laughs> grown up yeah. Americans can't do it very well either. But I was like, oh man, this is a unique skill that has to be taught distinctly and it has to be taught separately. So we have to use technology for that. You know, assessment, uh, you know, for, for the kinds of intervention learning that I was just talking about has to be done at scale with a digital tool. And we've, we've, we've got digital tools that we know we can do that, but we have, I haven't seen, there's, there's, um, you know, an aspect of like, say the read 180 program, which includes um, a computer based program, but, you know, I haven't seen a single program in adolescent literacy that really relies on computer for the instruction. There's lots of programs out there that are like, oh, we'll, we'll diagnose your needs and then we'll provide you the instruction that, that is best fits those needs. I haven't seen a single one of those programs be successful. And theoretically, because of the socially engaged nature of reading for adolescents, because of the complexity of discussions to actually, a computer can't tell you. I was just, I was just listening yesterday, one of my student teachers, they had an amazing debate in one of their classes where it was just a very simple question. Should schools have metal detectors in them? And it was really meaningful for students because they were evaluating a question that was in their own hallway. They could look outside and see, do we have, how does that metal detector make me feel? What is the value of safety in a community? Who feels safe and who doesn't? There's just, that's just absolutely not replicable on a computer. Now, it could be a computer platform where like that discussion could happen over Zoom, but the computer algorithm can't target the kind of instruction that students need by giving them the chance to explore that question under the guidance of a seasoned teacher, having read careful and up-to-date sources about it and engaging with their own peers. The great thing about discussions like that, which doesn't happen in computerized and individualized programs, is that that discussion can go with them outside the classroom. If everybody's doing their own thing on a computer because they're getting target instruction, then no one can talk about it in the hallway. If you've had a great discussion like that, it spills into the hallway. It spills into the metal detector. It spills into the school board meeting. And that that's learning. Yeah, that's powerful. Uh, it, this this IES practice guide it was published in 2008. We're going on, you know, solid 15 years. If you, you know, if you had your magic wand, how would you shift perhaps how these practice guides are are published and maintained to be more of an ongoing process rather than like a one and done? Yeah, I mean, they just they need to be by committees and they need to be given, you know, a charge that every two years they publish an update. You know, I read about this in the uh 
in the practice guide or the practice recommendations that are published by the American Academy of Pediatrics, for example. You know, when something new comes out about should we lock down our schools for coronavirus, there's the American Academy of Pediatrics at the forefront giving recommendations about whether we should lock it down. I didn't see a single education literacy organizations being at the forefront of those discussions about whether what are they going to be the effects on kids reading or their writing or their literacy development and see you know that's just we're just not there yet and that's true you know med the medical organization has a much broader funding model a lot more expertise a lot more history and i'm not saying we need to be medicine but i'm saying like we need to be we need to have our voices there we need to have committees ready to go if we just publish these guides it was almost like this guide was published and then it was assumed that it would be good for an indeterminate amount of time and, yeah. you know, every every time I, I get uh, every year that goes on, maybe just more cool, amazing research comes out that is just not being shared. And this and it'd be one thing if like this guide was just something that happened to be out there. But it's it's like scholars cite it. Ninety six percent of the people in my state think it's cool. So I think we've got to have standing committees. No, no practice guide should be published without a long term plan to keep it updated. And because otherwise, like, what's the point of doing this? And, and it's only going to get better. It's only going to get better with the great research we have. Yeah, I mean, we hate to throw that publication too much under the bus just because, it, you know, in its time, it represented this, this sort of monumental work to go in and summarize, uh, you know, practice recommendations for adolescent literacy. But at the same time, we can maintain that, yeah, research is ongoing. We learn new things and more nuanced things in a a practice guide that would reflect that, that is ongoing and updated. It's more of a live document, could really do a long way to support states, LEAs, individual teachers, researchers alike, be on the same page to best support students becoming literate, which is, I think, a very I mean, noble this, goal. The, the staggering part about it is that, so the I, I collected all of the, the studies they cited, and the average sample size of those studies in the I, that upon which the IAS guide's recommendations are based was 91 students. And I collected all of this. I looked at all the sample sizes in the most recent research for Adel of um, the Bay et al. synthesis of quantitative research for secondary reading programs. The average sample size was over 2,000. Like 22, our, our sample sizes, and that's only one small metric of what research quality is, but we're looking at bigger sample sizes. We can understand things at a different type of scale. 22 times as large. And that's in that study, that review was published in like 2019, like in a 10 year span. You imagine if something else grew by 20, a 22 fold amount, and it's just staggering. So I do think that um, our organizations like NCTE and ILA also need to be, you know, part of this discussion. Um, if the IES is going to be slow moving, then we need to put these things out. We need to put these things out faster. People want this information, and we just have to figure out how to get it. But I think the IES plays a unique role because people trust it so much. It's got the What Works Clearinghouse. It's got the federal stamp on it, and people care a lot more about those guides. Yeah, sample size, 22 times, that's a huge amount. And you also note that in the, the 2008 guide that it's really skewed, you know, adolescent literacy, we're talking fourth through 12th, but most of the research in that one was from like a fourth and fifth uh, population. Is that correct? Yeah, it was, it was like almost half of the studies came from just those first two grades. So it's really, and like, and the other thing that just, and that, that blew my mind. But then when I looked at it and I read the document, they excluded studies of students whose native language was not English. Well, okay, we've got, you know, something like 10 to 20% of our students out there who are multilingual students, we can't just decide to exclude them 
we can't just like leave them out of our practice guides. Now I realize there is an extra practice guide for specifically for students learning English in elementary and middle schools, but that doesn't reflect the realities of high school teachers who have multilingual students in their classrooms. So as, as research people, we can kind of go off in the weeds, but the principle is, is, you know, we're, we want our research to reflect our populations so we can, can really support the, the students in living, breathing classrooms. We've spent a lot of time talking about how research has shifted in the last 15 years. What recommendations do you have for how teachers and district administrators and, and building principals and states can keep their finger on the pulse of, of what is current? I would say um, think, think people, not documents. So the documents will come and they will go. But building people knowledge, whether it's following a researcher whose work you really like, or thinking about the people in a community, like I'm going to follow the ILA, you know, special interest group for adolescent literacy, or I'm going to follow the NCTE's Squire office, which um, publishes research briefs housed at the University of Notre Dame. So follow the people who are, who will know that sort of thing. If you look for individual documents, the documents, you know, just like the IES guide, it's not the IES guide's fault for going out. They, they did great work. It's just that more work has been done. So connecting to conferences, going, sending a representative to something like LRA, being, um, you know, involved in, um, in professional organizations themselves. I never thought about being an NCTE or ILA member when I was a high school teacher. I was just head down, own classroom, that was it. But, you know, now if I were thinking about designing professional development at scale, I'd say, you know, how do we connect our teachers to newest evidence is where it's coming out in NCT journals. It's coming out in ILA journals. It's coming out in, um, you know, even even practitioner journals like American Educator published by the America, the AFT. So, you know, it's all about the people. And if you're connected to the people who are going to keep their pulse on the research, then you're part of a research community. Certainly, I would I would advocate reading peer reviewed journals, although that's difficult to <clears throat> difficult for a lot of teachers to spend their time doing. But if they get in the habit of it, I'm trying to build my pre service teachers into that habit of not reading every article that comes out in RRQ or JAAL or reading teacher or something, but to know that it's there. And if they're wrestling with a problem, they can say like, oh, I'm really having trouble. This year, I've got a lot of ELLs. I don't, I haven't taught a lot of ELLs before. They know there's a place to go for that kind of work. That's fantastic. Uh, I've never quite thought about it in that way of, of connecting with the people, you know, that community, right? That, yeah, it's all, than, socially engaged literacy it. is true for literacy practitioners yeah. too. And I feel like I, you know, when I was a high school teacher, I really cared a lot about my practice, but I wasn't connected to any large, I was connected really closely to the teachers at my school, and I grew so much working with great colleagues, but I feel like now I know so much more because I'm connected to people at the state level, and I'm connected to people at the, I'm looking to learn about what's, what's, what cool things are happening in Nevada, what cool things are happening in Massachusetts or Mississippi, you know, I just, I was never, I, I just had my head down. So I think if you keep your head up, you don't have to be like doing something every day, but if you have some kind of connection to it, you're gonna be a lot better. And the other thing is I would say is um, learning how to read research. So I teach my teachers um, when they're pre-service teachers to you know, always how to break down a citation, to look for what year it was published, to look for when it was published, to look for where it was, was published, um, and to think about all of those aspects of, of what, of what uh, research reading research will look like when they're five years or 10 years out of our teacher prep programs because we get them for teacher prep we get them for a year you know two years maybe for graduate students maybe three years for undergraduates but we have to provide them with the kind of critical thinking habits that
that are going to last them through hopefully, you know, a 30 year teaching career. So you've got to be playing the long game and teaching them where to look and how to look rather than just acting like we've got all the information now. Love it when it comes full circle like that. That's wonderful. Final question. What makes a good teacher? Whew, boy, there's a, there's a, you want to discuss this for the next, yeah. next couple hours? I could do that. Um, yeah. But I, I think um, a lot of it comes down to understanding how communities are, communities and knowledge are back and forth back and forth. You know, what we know is related to what community we're in and what we care to know is related to what community we're in. Um, the, way the, the way that different levels of communities value knowledge shapes the kind of instructional practice that teachers can do when they're getting mandates from schools and districts, but they're also working within the very small communities. So I think it's, the if I had to say one thing, because I know we're almost done with our podcast here, there's a million other things that, of course, good teachers need, but it's an intimate understanding of not just this concept, but understanding of how knowledge gets created in communities and knowledge gets pushed down from top down communities and knowledge bubbles up from classroom communities. If you can see how kids construct knowledge through, say, socially engaged literacy environments and how that can be leveraged into bigger types of knowledge, but also how to navigate the larger ideas of what our researchers decide knowledge is or what our state test decide knowledge is and and what that looks like is to be able to critically analyze this is what the state's vision of knowledge is well they really prize reliable and valid standardized assessment well that's one type of knowledge at the state level community because we want to have evidence to talk to our state level stakeholders but also like what does that look like with us a guided reading group of you know for you know nine-year-olds that sense of a knowledge community bubbles up as they try to make sense of a, of a of a novel together so that's that's kind of a vague answer but i think that's i think that's ultimately the thing that i think ties together all of the different levels and the relationships between that are built into all that too dr dan reynolds thanks for joining us on the teaching literacy podcast it's been a delight thanks jake A great big thanks to Dr. Dan Reynolds for joining us on the show. I learned so much from our conversation together. I'm sure you had a lot of great takeaways as well. To wrap up the show, I'm just going to provide my two cents on what we talked about. For my first point, I want to talk briefly for a second just about how research tends to evolve. Because we mentioned several times in this episode that even though we're talking 15 years of difference, 2021 versus 2008, even though there's been quite a bit of research that has continued since then, the new research doesn't completely replace the old research. It, it's built upon it. It's, it's an evolution of it. It's more nuanced. We know more about it. And so it's not that we th- want to just throw out the old research, that the old research somehow has a shelf life, uh, like something you might buy at the grocery store, and, and we have to just you know chuck it once it gets to a certain age. But we do need to keep our finger on the pulse of how things update. And that's a similar thread of what we talked about with Dr. Tim Shanahan in episode 20, where he talked about 20 years of NRP 2000. And and he said that he said a very he made a very similar point in that podcast that the new that new research typically doesn't replace the old research. It just lets us know more. It gives us a more nuanced approach. 
And so my hope is that as you're thinking about best practice and reading different sources and um, trying to curate what's best for your students, just remembering that just because something is old doesn't mean that it is bad or that it's outdated, um, but it but there probably is updated information with it. The second point I want to talk about is actually something that Dr. Reynolds and I didn't talk at all about in the podcast, but is sort of another vein of research that he does that I'm very interested in. And in other publications, he talks about a contingency-based scaffold. And I, I just never quite found a way to shoehorn it into this conversation. Maybe we'll invite him to be back on the show, but... In the end, the reason that we are continually doing research, the reason why we're updating practice guide, the reason why we update course standards and we update curriculum is in the end, we are trying to be responsive to what students need in order to help them become literate, productive individuals. But in the end, it comes down to those who are stakeholders being responsive to what their students need. A curriculum in and of itself does not teach. A curriculum can cover any number of important things, but it takes a teacher to see what's important in the curriculum, to be able to see what his or her students need and being able to make instruction happen for their group of students. That's not a thought we talked about directly in the show, but I think it complements um, everything we talked about very well, is in the end we are trying to be responsive to what our students need, a contingency-based scaffold. All right, that is all I have for you today. Thanks very much for listening to the show today. If you enjoyed what you listened to, please share this episode with a colleague. You can also feel free to rate and or review this show wherever you find the podcast. I appreciate what you're doing for the students who are in your stewardship. What we do day in and day out does make a difference, so let's keep doing it and doing it well. This is Jake with the Teaching Literacy Podcast, and until next time, let's go and teach reading just a little bit better.